Here we go. So, first things first, uh, Mike and Michelle are not here this morning, obviously. Um, they are uh, at a pastor's conference that they went to, and they are they were some of the um, the keynote speakers. They actually shared, I think, yesterday. They Both of them got up and shared together with the pastors. As you can imagine, Michelle was thrilled about that. Um, but she actually, believe it or not, kind of was. She was excited about what they had to share, and uh, Mike, Mike texted me, uh, yesterday afternoon, I think, and said it went really well, and it's been a really encouraging time for them. So um, glad to hear that. Glad that it went well. And um, I'm going to pull kind of an '80s pastor move here. We're, we're going to start with a Peanuts comic. You haven't seen you haven't seen a, somebody like open a sermon with a Peanuts comic in a while, probably have you? Um, and. Uh, I did the first two frames because I don't want to give away the punchline right away. It's, you know, so Linus is here hitting balls against the garage. Uh, Snoopy's hitting balls against the garage. He said, I find it interesting that you should have the garage for a partner when you play mixed doubles. Do you remember this at the garage? He had two partners. He had Molly Volley, but then he also had the garage sometimes. He said, I wonder what the best part of his game is. And he said, you know, he never foot faults. Um, so... The reason I brought that up, because I'm thinking the other benefit of having a garage as a partner is that it never argues with you, right? You're, you, you probably, it doesn't get mad at you when you, when you foot fault. It doesn't, it doesn't argue with you. And um, the point of this, the, the reason I think it relates to what we're talking about this morning is that sometimes I think that we wish as Christians that, um, that we could do life with a church full of garage doors, if you get what I'm saying, it would be simpler if we could live our lives, our, live out our Christian walk um, with inanimate objects um, or just between us and God. Because when you add all of those sinful Christians in, it gets really complicated, right? Like my Christian walk would be a lot easier if not for all of you. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> not really. Well, not really. But, but this is, in fact, these chapters, these couple of chapters we're in, they deal a lot with that part of our Christian walk, the, the, the interaction that we have to have with each other. Um, in fact, there's a phrase in this, in the very first verse that we're dealing with today. Let me read the verse. He says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So that phrase, that one another, it's actually, I, I looked it up, it's, it's one word in Greek. And I had to spell it out phonetically because I don't speak Greek, but it, it's elelon is the word. It's one another. And it turns out that phrase is used an awful lot in the New Testament. Um, I have a few examples. Second Corinthians, finally brothers rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another. Agree with one another, live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. And then in Ephesians, he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. A few more, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. First Peter, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. And then, of course, First John, we could probably all sing this one, right? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The older ones amongst us could probably sing this. Um, but this, uh, this, this phrase just shows up over and over in the New Testament. Um, in fact, it, it turns out it shows up 59 times in the New Testament. That, that word, that one another, that alelon. See my Greek there? Are you impressed? Um, 
And I like this quote from Andy Stanley. I, I think he's Charles Stanley's son. Um, he said the primary activity of the church was one another in one another. And, and that's, that's really true, isn't it? The whole Christian life is about one another in one another. Like learning to live, or a good part of the Christian life is that, is, is learning to live with one, with one another, to get along together, to, to interact well. Um, it's the most challenging, but it's also the most rewarding. This is why Sunday mornings are, are a joy, is that's when we get to be together. But the value of that, the essential nature of our relationships with one another, that's at the heart of the understanding of this passage, I think. It, it's at the core of it um, physically, at the core of this chapter, that phrase, one another. And I think understanding understanding how it applies is, is a sort of an anchor point as we, as we dive into the rest of this passage. And it's worth noting ahead of time, this means particular one another's. Um, Somebody told me one time, particular is the, the, the um, I think the Puritans used it in a word to mean like specific, like he, like a, a particular person. So I'm, I'm getting a little muddy here, but the idea is that we don't just have to live with a certain one another, but we have to live with all of the individual one another's that make up the church. And that makes it even more complicated. Um, so we're going to set that down as our anchor point and then We'll remember that kind of as our as our base. And I want to real briefly go back and look at a couple of things from the first half of the chapter. Because as you as you I'm sure know, this this chapter of Romans 14 and even a little bit into 15 is sort of one continuous thought that that Paul is laying out about how we how we one another with one another, how we live together. And um so he started this chapter chapter talking about a couple of divisive issues in the church. Right, he, the, they were namely one is whether or not we should eat meat or only eat vegetables, and the other is whether to count one day as more special than another. How we treat certain days. Um, these are issues that Christians of the time they, they disagreed on. They didn't see eye to eye on them. Um, they're not they're not matters of preference, but they're matters of they were matters of personal conviction. Some people had a conviction that they should. Um, treat one day as more more special than another, and some people have a conviction that they should not eat meat, they should only eat vegetables. Um, and the reason we it seems like that they thought that they shouldn't eat the meat is because either it was not kosher, they were thinking about the Jewish dietary laws, or because they were concerned that the meat might have been sacrificed to an idol, and so by eating that meat, they were kind of participating in, in the worship of that idol. But then there were others who who kind of said, well, no, it, it, it's fine, we can do that. And Mike described these last week as disputable matters, disputable matters, which I think is a good, a good description. Um, there were issues that are not essential to the gospel that Christians were disputing about. This was not, is Christ really fully God? That's not a disputable matter, right? The, that, that is, that is fund, that's a fundamental matter to the gospel. This, this, is a, this is a matter that is less essential. But I, but I do think it's worth noting something interesting here that's, imp, that's important in terms of how we address the, the remainder of the chapter. Paul, in, in verse 1, if you look back of, of chapter 14, he uses the word to describe one, one group. He, he, he uses the word weak. He says, you know, as for the one who is weak in faith. And I thought, man, did he really mean weak? Is that like just an unfortunate word word choice when he when he when he calls one group weak? 
So I, I looked up the word, because he uses it twice in this passage, he, weak, the weaker brother. And the word means weak. <laughs> I know it's surprising. <laughs> but it, 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 weak is actually probably the nicest translation of it, because it also means feeble and sickly. When you look back earlier in the New Testament, when Jesus heals the sick, it's the same word. When, we, when, when he talks about healing the sick, this is the word he's used, the, the same word that Paul has chosen to use twice here. And, and lest we're still in doubt, um, it's a little bit of a long passage, but Paul addresses, as it turns out, this exact same issue in 1 Corinthians. And he says, but some, uh, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, same word, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So he makes the same point there in the same way with the same words. So what specifically is in view here in this passage are people who have not fully grasped the extent of grace that we have in Christ. He's very specifically, I think, purposely using that word. It doesn't seem like an accident because he uses it twice there and twice here, and he, he's very specific. These are people whose faith is, is weak, and they don't have a full understanding of the liberty that we have in Christ, the liberty to eat all foods. And this is not just Paul's opinion. Um, it's worth noting that Christ himself, he deliberately healed on the Sabbath, right? There's a number of places where he kind of specifically, he could have waited till the next day, but he specifically heals somebody on the Sabbath to make a point. And there's even, in Mark, a passage where Jesus enters the house and he left his people. And so he, there's, he's having a discussion with the Pharisees, but then he goes back into the house to talk to his disciples and he asks them about it, and, and, or they ask him, and he says, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? And I put in red. Which, can, you, can you see the red? I didn't think about that. On my computer it showed up great. Um, Thus he declared all foods clean. That, that's a little parenthesis that, that Mark put in there. He said, Jesus declared all foods clean. So Jesus felt the same way. Jesus said, no, all foods, everything is clean. There are no unclean foods. And of course, Paul confirms this a little more in verse 14. Look at what he says. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is clean. So we don't have to guess where Paul lands on this debate, do we? He tells us explicitly, nothing in itself is unclean. The people who think that it's unclean are not fully understanding the extent to which the new covenant is a new covenant, right? They're not fully grasping the freedom. So it's important, again, as another anchor point that I think we understand that. We understand where Paul is coming from. Um, these are disputable matters. They're things that are not under, essential to the gospel, but Paul does not just say, don't worry about it, right? He doesn't just say that. Like He doesn't say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's true because it's not important. So quit. So don't worry about it because it doesn't matter, right? He, he specifically doesn't say that. Um, he doesn't say um, just whatever. He, he makes his point like, hey, this is, this is what's actually theologically correct. Are you following me there? That for some reason, 
Paul is doing that. But as 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 and this is about the end of our, our review of the first half of the chapter, as Mike talked about, he says, for, for you on either side of that issue, regardless of that, there are errors that can happen. The, the person who is, let's say, stronger in faith might look down on the person who, who is, has a weaker faith, and the person who is weaker in faith might judge um, the weaker brother, or they might make the mistake of going along and doing the thing in violation of their conscience. So, so Paul had warned him, hey, watch out for these. These are both mistakes. There's mistakes that can be made on both sides wherever you land theologically. So building on that foundation, moving into the second half of the chapter, it's interesting because Paul makes a shift now. He's kind of said, look, let me give a warning to each of you. Let me, you guys don't judge. You guys don't be arrogant. But then he, the second half of the chapter seems like he's kind of shifting to specific directions for the strong. Let's call them that. He doesn't use the phrase the strong, but the, the not weak? I don't know. The, the unsick? The, the first half had instructions for people on both sides, but the second half is directed more narrowly just at, at these people. So from verse 13 on, he seems to be speaking just to the more mature, the one with the more mature understanding of Christian liberty. And Paul, being Paul, is a little loopy, a little repetitive here in, in, in how he lays this out. Um, he, he, kind of, he kind of makes a point and then makes a point and then makes a point. Um, and so I've tried to unpeel it a little bit because that's not how I, I don't think that well. I, I like to like, let's talk about one point, Paul, and then move on to the next point. Um, so I'm going to try and kind of bounce around a little bit to walk through the points that I think he's making. The first, which we've touched on, is that he just wants to be clear on what is the correct theology. All foods are, in fact, clean. He says it in 14, and he says it again in the second half of verse 20. If you look down, he says, Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So he first establishes that, where he stands. And then he goes on, though, to warn about the dangers of exercising this theology of, of without care, without care acting on, on, on what this theology is. He says in verse 13, he says that we should decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. It's the same phrase he uses in that passage in 1 Corinthians we looked at. And he says it this way in verse 15. He says, for if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And he says it a third time in verses 20 through 21. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So three times he, he lays out this exact same direction on how we should act. If you perceive that you're in the presence of a brother or a sister who might be tempted to stumble, might be tempted to sin because of, of, of how you're exercising your freedom, he says, back off, refrain, don't exercise your freedom. And of course we can and, and should and do often extrapolate this, as Mike did, to other areas of life. But we need to be careful because Paul isn't, isn't just talking about things that offend your brother. Um, he's very specifically talking about things that might cause your brother to stumble. 
So like, if I told you that I liked pineapple on my pizza, some of you might be offended by that, right? Some of you might be like, yeah, see, I see some head shakes out there. Like, you, I, you, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. I'm not going to listen to anything else you have to say. Or if, if, if one of you maybe told me that you were a, a Dodgers fan, <laughs> I might be offended. But I wouldn't be at risk of, you're not putting me at risk of stumbling, right? I'm not putting you at risk of stumbling by telling you um, that I like pineapple on my pizza or that the Giants are the best team. Um, yeah. I should have gone football. I was going to use the, the I was going to use the Cowboys. Like if you're a Cowboys fan, I, I'm going to try and offend everybody if I can here. But but do you see the difference? Do you see that there's a difference here between um, things that we might find offensive and something that that very that might cause a, a brother or sister to stumble in their faith? Um, whether because and and specifically because they might be tempted to to go along and do the thing that that you're that you're doing you eat exercising your liberty and they might be they might be tempted even though they're not there to do that so paul says he does say in this circumstances where your actions put you at risk of causing a weaker brother to do something contrary to their conscience be careful to be aware of that and don't feel like you have to exercise your liberty in that case in fact don't don't exercise your liberty in that case, right? Don't try to argue with them either. Don't be, come on, it's fine, right? Don't, we're not supposed to try and bring them along either in the moment to, to, to see our point of view because you might win the argument, really, right? You might actually like bring them along and they'd be like, well, okay, and, and then and do that thing, whatever that thing is, and, 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 but they're not there. They're, they're, they're not all the way there, and so they're going to stumble. So Paul explains how this works in, in, in verses 23. He says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So note again that Paul tells us, he says, look, if you... If you can if you can exercise this freedom, you're blessed. If you if you have come to a point of, of understanding the fullness of freedom we have in Christ, you are blessed. But but in 23 he says, but if someone eats along with you and they do so in doubt, they're sinning because of what you're doing. Now, isn't that a weird idea to when you really think about it, you and I could both sit down. We could both eat the same exact meal, the same exact food. And for me, it would not be sin, and for you, it might. That's kind of a mind-blowing idea when you think about it. It's very, very anti-religious, right? Religions like to tell us this is right, this is wrong. You do this, you're good. You do this, you're wrong. And yet, Paul is saying, hey, here's a circumstance where the two people, both Christians, can do the exact same thing, and for you it's not sin, and for you it is. I just think that's kind of a that's kind of a a wild, like crazy idea, but it's 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 clearly here. And of course, we need to step back for a moment and clarify, right? I don't think I need to clarify this, but but it's worth doing. Um, this isn't true of everything, right? Um, adultery is always sin. There, there's there's not like well, you know, your adultery is not sinful and mine is or murder, right? I mean. 
there, there are certain things that are black and white. Paul's not saying, hey, there's nothing that's black and white. Clearly, there are things that are black and white, right? But there are some things, there are some, a number of things in the Christian life that are, that are different depending on where your heart is. Some of them, these things, they're, they're only sinful if the person who does them, if they don't proceed from faith, is what he says, from the strong conviction um, that, that of knowing where we stand. So a takeaway from that, of course, is we need to know where we stand. We need to spend time figuring out what our convictions are, don't we? I mean, studying the Bible and seeing what it says and just thinking about... Um, what our convictions are on, on, on some of these issues that Christians disagree on, some of these things. I mean, some Christians, as an example, um, I think maybe the best example, one of the, for me, one of the best ones to think through is, is the example of, of, of drinking alcohol. Because it's, it's kind of similar to this, right? In that it's something that there are a number of Christians who would say, no, it's absolutely not okay. In modern times, who would say, well, no, it's definitely not okay. And there's, uh, it, there's a number who would say, no, it's fine. And it, that's kind of a good way just to think through and to relate to this. Um, but we need to know where we stand on that and not just kind of go along with whatever happens. We need to know where we stand and why. But Paul says we also need to be mindful of those we're with, of one another. We need to be careful to know where they stand and to be sure we're not leading them into something that'll be sinful for them. So why? What does Paul say is our motivation to act that way? That's kind of the next thought as we work through here. I mean, obviously, we don't want to destroy our brother. I mean, that, yes. That, so I guess what I mean is how. He, he, he gives us some instructions, I think, on, on how, how we can do this, how we can get ourselves to a mind frame where we can do that. And the first part is this idea that we've already talked about, um, this idea of, of confidence, of knowing where we stand. He actually, I think, kind of says part of how you do this is by being confident in where you stand. Um, it might be, seem kind of contradictory, but I think there's a reason that he establishes what is the proper theology and that he, he establishes where he stands. He's telling us, look, you need to know where you stand. And what I mean by that is if we're uncertain where we, if we come into one of these situations unsure of where we stand on it, then we might have a hard time yielding because we kind of feel like we need to prove our point. Have you experienced that? That sometimes it's easier to give ground in somewhere where you're a little more confident of it because you don't actually feel like I need to make sure that, that they agree with it too because that'll reinforce that I agree with it. Um, actually, was the way Robert approached communion this morning was sort of a... It kind of stirred up the same thing in me, the fact that we came at it from, let's start, let's start this, this time of... Did I say communion? Confession. It took, it took me a few beats, but I got there. We didn't do communion yet, did we? Okay. Next week. Okay. So the time of confession that we came to it, first from the standpoint of like, hey, remember that God loves you. That Have that confidence before, you, before we even step forward to, to think about our failings. Remember that God loves you and accepts you. And I think it's, there, it struck me as kind of the same thing. I think it's a little easier to yield when we are confident, solidly confident in what we believe. But the second thing Paul tells us is that we have to keep things in perspective. He says, essentially, you're, you're, matter to, you're worried about this matter of food and drink, but this is the kingdom of God we're talking about. 
It's so much more than that. It's so much bigger than that. Look at verses 17 through 19. He says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He says, we're, we're talking about God's kingdom here. This is a kingdom of righteousness and joy. It's an eternal kingdom. These issues are going to fade. We're going to all be together in eternity with, with, with Jesus. So he says, keep that perspective in mind when these, these little Really, these little day-to-day issues cause you to get so stirred up. He says, remember the eternal perspective. Remember the kingdom that you're a part of. And he also says, act in a way that will lead to peace and mutual upbuilding. Um, build up your brother and you will be built up also. As we build each other up, we, we both kind of, I think, get built up. <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Um and, and that's, having that perspective, I think, can help us, um, if we're struggling to yield in a situation, it can help us, I think, to have an easier time to do so. But that, that last phrase, that mutual upbuilding phrase, it leads me, I had a few questions, I guess, as I, as I read through this. And one of them, I, it goes something like this. So, okay, Paul, you're telling me to refrain from exercising my liberty so that I don't cause this, that, that I don't... I don't tear down or destroy my weaker brother. That's good. The brother's not not destroyed, but are they built up? That's to say, they have a theology that's wrong, right? They're they are they're limiting themselves because their theology on food is incorrect. And and Paul makes it clear throughout this that their theology is incorrect, right? So do I just leave them there? And that's where the the temptation to argue with people, and if we put it in the best light, I think it can come from that. Like we run into saying, "No, it's it's not like that. There's way more freedom than that. Look at look at what we have in Christ." That's where that temptation can come from. And so I think we 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 have good intentions, and we want to bring them there, um, but we also don't want to do if do it in the moment in a way that we cause them to not having fully gotten there. Sin. So, I think often we find with things of the church, with, with things of God, that there's like two extremes we have to avoid. Have you seen this? There's, there's two rails, two rails we have to try and stay between. And I think in this passage, Paul's talking about this rail over here. The one of like insisting on your rights to the detriment of your brother. You know what I'm saying? That the, the, the causing damage to them because we're just so insistent on being right. Um, but it's clear here that, that Paul does say, no, this other rail, good theology does matter, right? He, he, he points it out here in this passage. He points it out in the passage in 1 Corinthians. Um, he does so again in the book of Colossians. Did I pull this up? I did. Good job. Telling myself, good job. <laughs> <clears throat> so therefore, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So if, if your takeaway from this passage is that you're, you're never supposed to work to bring people around to the, to the right point of view, 
then Paul's a pretty bad example, isn't he? Right? He seems to be going out of his way to do just the opposite. Even while he's telling us, care about your brother, don't cause him to stumble, he's in this passage telling us what's good theology, he's in 1 Corinthians telling us what's good theology, in Colossians he's telling us what is the correct theology, right? So if, if, if this is the rail of causing a brother to stumble, there's a rail over here of where we say, well, truth doesn't matter, and what is correct theology doesn't matter. And Paul is not going there, because Paul seems to be really concerned with telling us what proper theology is. Um, so we need to find some place in the middle of those rails, right? We need to find somewhere in the middle of those two extremes and guard against both of them. Um, the opposite, of course, because if, if we don't, what ends up happening is, um, well, let me, I think Ray Stedman said it really well. He said, I do not think the cause of Christ is ever advanced by having every strong Christian in a congregation completely forsake their right to indulge in some of the things, some of the controversial things. What happens then is that the whole question is settled on the basis of the most narrow and most prejudiced person in the congregation. And soon the gospel becomes identified with that kind of view. You get what I'm saying? His point is, if all we do is cater to the weaker brother, then eventually that becomes doctrine. That, 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 that becomes what is true. We would all be vegetarians today, right? If that's all that ever happened in the church is they always catered to the ones who who struggled with eating meat, then the whole church would be full of that. That Eventually, practice becomes doctrine. Um, and I'm not saying it would be the worst thing in the world if we were all vegetarians, but it wouldn't be the best thing either. Not the best thing either. So, so how do we know the difference? How do we know when to yield and when to teach? How do we know when to exercise grace and when to exercise truth? Well, as it turns out, there's a really simple way to know in every situation exactly what to do. You have your pens out? Because here it is. You ready? Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. There's no way. <laughs> no, there's, there's no simple way, is there? There is, there is no simple way to know the right way to act in every situation. I think yielding is, is probably the safer option in some circumstances, if we're not sure. Um, probably the risk of destroying a brother is worse than the risk of them having bad theology for a while till they come around. So I would say if we're not sure, yeah, yielding is probably a, probably a good bet. But, but we shouldn't stay, stop there. We shouldn't be comfortable just always staying there and always standing because we want, we, want, we want the truth to also come through. So my next question, um, the next thing that I, as I was thinking about that I'm wondering about is, does, does this put me at risk of being a hypocrite? I mean, I believe all food is good, and you're asking me to go and act like it's not. You're asking me to, to live in a way that is different than, than my theology. Are you tracking with me there? Like, I, I'm a little concerned about that. And um, Paul, actually, if it, I, we don't have a ton of time to get into it today, but Paul kind of describes a situation just like this. If you're familiar with Galatians chapter 3, Paul talks about this time where, where Peter comes down, I think it's to Antioch, and on previous trips, Peter had eaten with the Gentiles. He had sat down and he had eaten with the Gentiles. But a number of the Jews in Jerusalem were concerned about that. They said, Paul, we feel like you're not, we're not, on, you're not honoring our concerns. Paul, Peter. 
He says, Peter, we feel like you're not honoring our concerns. And so the next time he goes down there, he kind of segregates himself and just eats with the Jews and doesn't eat with the Gentiles. And Paul calls him out on it. He calls him out as a hypocrite. He's like, you're not practicing what is true. You know what's true and you're not. And to give Peter the benefit of the doubt, I think Peter was probably trying to do this. He was probably just trying to be mindful of these concerns and kind of please these guys. But but Paul says, you are, I mean, he calls them out hard. He says, you are acting contrary to the gospel. So there's a risk here, right? There's a risk in how we walk this line that, that we can be hypocrites if we're not careful. And uh, the dividing line, I think, seems to be where where it will obscure the gospel where it will harm one set of believers, because in doing what Peter did for the Jews, he's kind of hurting these Gentiles over here. He's hurting their feelings. He's hurting their theology, right? So it's, it's a balancing act, and, I, and, and he's also saying something that is, he's acting in a way that is somewhat contrary to the gospel. So again, it's not simple, is it, right? If I could give you that little, that little one-liner answer to make it simple, I would, but I don't think it is. I think it's very complicated. You guys are like, are you going to teach us anything today? <laughs> so finally we need to ask, well, this passage is, I think, dealing with a very narrow situation. That is, a weaker brother. I mean, yeah, this passage seems to be very specifically dealing with a weaker brother who might be tempted to sin by a stronger brother exercising liberty. The question we have to ask is, does this, does this have a wider application? Does it apply to areas of doctrine where it's not clear who's right and wrong? Like, like how a church should take communion. Should a church take communion once once a month or or every week? Um, or like what the church music should be. Should we have you know really rocking music? Should we have only only you know an organ? There are there's all kinds of things like this we can think of in in the world of of, of church, right? And so the question is, does this passage apply there? And I would say, not directly, not. Not directly, right? This seems to be dealing with a very specific case. But I think indirectly, the principles are the same. Indirectly, this passage does have a wider um, application. And, and, and my reason for saying that is all of these one another phrases that we find throughout the whole New Testament. Paul tells us in Ephesians, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. I think of it as like, like we're both... We're both working hard to submit to each other back and forth. There's a, there's a back and forth, a give and take of submitting to one another in a, in a proper Christian relationship. And in Colossians, he tells us, bear with one another. Bear with one another. So, so our lives together as a church are, are one anothering of one another. They have to be lived in love. Whether that means how we relate to a weaker brother to keep them from stumbling, or it just means not always insisting in our own way in order to keep the peace. Um, the principle's the same. The underlying principle of, of, of how we one another with each other. Um, and love, of course, means, if, if, if you've been in any loving relationship, love means submitting sometimes, submitting to one another. Sometimes pushing a bit hard, and sometimes giving in. I think we're to live our lives not like we're playing tennis against a garage, where every ball comes back exactly. I mean, that's the good part, right? You hit it, and if you hit it right, it comes right back to the same spot every single time. But like we're playing tennis with people, and that requires love and wisdom and humility, and it also requires knowing each other. 
we have to know each other if we're going to love each other well, because I need to know where you stand. And how do I know where you stand unless I know you, unless I spend time with you? In fellowship, um, in, uh, in, yeah, in having food together, meals together, in worshiping together, in small groups, we have to get to know each other. And finally, I think it requires a ton of grace and prayer. As with everything that God asks of us, we are totally incapable of doing this. On our own, we are anyways. We're only capable of this if God works in us to do it. All of these things, whether it's submitting, whether it's teaching, all of these things we are totally incapable of without the help of the Holy Spirit and without prayer. And so with that in mind, let's, uh, let's pray now. Our God and Father, we confess that straight away, that we are not capable of living like this. Um, we don't know the right time or the right way to do it, and we also oftentimes don't want to do the right thing. And yet, God, you have, you have shown us the right thing here, and you have promised us that through your Holy Spirit, we can live this way, Lord. We can, we can act this way. We can practice this way. That you will empower us um, to know what is right and to serve one another. So, God, we pray that, that you would grow us in wisdom. We pray that you would grow us in, in good theology. We pray that you would grow us in love and knowledge of one another so that we could glorify you in the way that we, that we live life together, in the way that we, that we serve one another, and, and in the way that we yield to one another when it's necessary, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.